Open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at a short but powerful passage, verses 24 through 29. Today we're continuing in our sermon series that has a very simple title, titled New. And we will see that the gospel brings an incredible reality into our lives. We are given a new hope. And as we will see, this isn't any small or uncertain hope. No, this hope brings us all that our souls long for, brings us glory, real glory, lasting glory, satisfying glory, glory that only God can give, glory that allows us to rest. It's quite a hope. Are you longing for hope this morning? Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, you must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this word, uh, a word of great encouragement to us of what you have done and are doing and one day will fully do. Give us eyes to, compre- uh, to see it and minds to comprehend it and, and hearts that desire to follow after what you are showing us here this morning. We thank you in the name of our Savior. Amen. Sorry, John Wagner. i got to say this. Last Sunday, Bill Belichick and his New England Patriots... <laughs> staged the most glorious comeback in 51 years of Super Bowl championships. Like him or not, Bill Belichick is one of the greatest coaches of all times. He has won seven Super Bowl rings. He holds the record as a coach holding five Super Bowl rings as a coach. His career is envied by tens of thousands of football coaches all around America, Most would give their right arm just to have a bit of the glory and success of Belichick. And you would like to think that with all of his success and glory, that Bill Belichick would be content with what he's achieved. It appears he's not. In fact, this past week he did something so strange. Everybody was talking about it on the the internet. 
During the parade, the victory parade, back in Boston on Tuesday, Bill Belichick stood before the huge crowd, hundreds of thousands of people, and he gives out this most bizarre chant. No days off. No days off. No days off. No days off. I'm like, what is that? In Belichick's mind, there was no time to relish the glory of an amazing year in victory. In fact, the day before, he had told reporters that because of their success, he and his staff were now actually five weeks behind the rest of the teams in the league. Now, a few of us, uh, most of us here, aren't as extreme in Bill, as Bill Belichick, but he illustrates a pervasive reality here on earth. Glory, as good as it can be here on earth, is fleeting. We humans strive and strive to achieve some semblance of happiness and success and assets. But because of the nature of this fallen world, nothing is secure. We place our hopes in careers and cars and relationships and families and cool experiences. And so we toil and we struggle and we suffer in order to get glory in our lives. You know, it's amazing what humans will do to go to suffer in order to feel glory for just one day. And so in our subconscious minds, we wake up each day and in our pursuit of glory, we chant, no days off, no days off, no days off. What all this chanting in our souls points to is that we're all longing for a full and lasting glory, one that cannot be taken away or lost. We're hardwired for it. It's as if it's in our DNA. We long for glory. Now, the Bible brings all of this into clear view. God made man in his image to reflect God's glory in God's good and glorious creation. Our glory, as it was designed, is, has been and must always be a derived glory. It's not in ourself, but it's a glory that comes from God and from a relationship with God. We were made by God, the God of glory, to live lives of glory in a relationship with him. That's why you feel this strong need of glory. But mankind turned from God and sought glory apart from God. It's a, it's a, it's a tragedy of a cosmic scale. Now we live only 60 or 70 years chasing caricatures of the real thing. But there's hope. Hope of glory for this universe. Hope of glory, a full and lasting glory for you and me. Paul tells us something that if, we, if it soaks in, it, it should capture our hearts and delight us. Verse 27, Paul says that there is the hope of glory. Now remember when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not a contingent hope, like I hope to get a date for the prom, right? When the Bible speaks of hope, it is a certain hope. Why is it? It's because God is the one who is up to something. And if God is up to something, he will surely bring it about. And therefore, if we hope in something that God is bringing about, it is a certain hope, right? 
Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, then at some levels you know this. You, you know that Jesus promised to one day return, that he would renew and restore the entire cosmos, including a glorious but this fallen world that we live on, that, that heaven will one day come down to earth. God who made us will dwell with us, and we will exist in real, glorious, physical bodies. You and I who trust in Christ, we will thrive and we will flourish in never-ending joyful perfection. If you're a Christian, you know this at some level. Our problem, the problem that Paul is addressing with this church in Colossae, is that we're quick to place our hope somewhere else. We tend to get waylaid. We tend to get lulled in by other promises. In this city, this ancient city of Colossae, it was a small city, about 100 miles down the road from Ephesus, this young, impressionable church was being enticed away from the gospel. Most of the residents there participated in some sort of pagan, ritualistic, cultic worship. There were numerous mystery cults that promised secret insight. And it appears that the church in Colossae was being influenced and led astray by the promises of these mystery cults. Today, we can be led astray by all kinds of messages. Pursue this career, drive this car, live in this gated community, and glory will come to you. Paul wishes to hit the reset button for us this morning. There is no greater glory than what God is up to. In Christ, we have the hope of glory. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to divide our time into three areas. The, the mystery, the ministry, and the manner. The mystery, the ministry, and the manner. First, Paul reveals a mystery that is relevant for all of humanity. You know, I don't go into mall department stores all that often. There's not a whole lot of them out here on the East End, right? But whenever I do, I find that I have to fight my way through the cosmetics department. <laughs> It's always on the first floor, right at the entrance. There's always multiple employees with, in lab coats with spray bottles trying to entice me to sample some enchanting fragrance. I've learned to move fast and avoid eye contact. I have no need of the cosmetics department, except maybe Christmas time. It's irrelevant to me. Some people think that that's the gospel. It's irrelevant. But the gospel isn't like that. We all have need of the gospel. The gospel is for every human being who has ever lived. That's what Paul is saying at verse 26 when he refers to the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed. See, prior to Christ coming on the scene, salvation was culturally limited, or at least so it seemed. Even the ancient Jew, though God had told them that his salvation was, was for foreigners too, even the ancient Jew believed that salvation was Jewish, right? But then Paul, a Jew by birth, writes in verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's all the nations, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. With the advent of Christ, God made known to the world that his plan of cosmic renewal isn't just for the Jew, it's for every people group. See, the leaders of these mystery cults in Colossae were trying to lead Colossians astray. We offer exclusive, restricted access to glory. Join our mystery cult, learn from us, and you will have what others can't have. 
Paul is reminding the Colossians that they already have the greatest of salvation, that their salvation isn't exclusive, but it's inclusive. God's redemption is for any and for all people who would turn to Christ. Now, it's funny because what is one of the biggest reasons people will reject Christianity today? They'll say Christianity is too narrow. It's too exclusive. But far from it, Christianity isn't solely for the social or educational elite. It's not just for the outcasts and the undesirables. It's for all people of all social strata, income levels, of every nation, tribe, and tongue. God offers his salvation to everyone. That's what Paul is saying in in verse 27. This hope of glory to come can belong to anyone. Now, is that narrow? But what is the mystery? Paul says in verse 27 that this rich and glorious mystery is Christ in you. Christ in you. Now, what does Paul mean? Well, on the one hand, since he's a Jew and he's talking to Gentiles, he's letting them know that, that this means that, that, that Christ has come to you, Gentiles. But Paul means far more than that. Paul means this amazing truth. Christ, the, the risen Son of God, who now dwells in perfect glory in heaven. Christ enters into his people. Jesus promised that this day would come. He promised that he would not leave his followers alone, remember? but that he would send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, into all who by faith trust in Christ. Recall in, on the, in the night in which Jesus betrayed, he had all his disciples together, and he prayed what's been called, come to be called the, the high priestly prayer. It's in John 17. I encourage you to read that. But towards the end of the prayer, as he's praying to his Father in, ha- in heaven, on behalf of people who in the future would come to believe in Christ, here's what he says. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That day has come. Christ arose from the dead and is seated on his throne in heaven. And his promise to send the Holy Spirit into his church this day has come. Christ dwells in his people by means of his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So understand what Paul is saying. God chose to make known the riches of his glory. God chose to manifest his grace to this glory-starved world. Jesus' death means that all who trust in Christ have a restored relationship with the glory giver. And he's not stingy. And Jesus' resurrection means that the age to come is guaranteed for you. And so right now, Jesus is on his throne in fullness of glory. And he cares so much for his church that he does not leave us grasping at straws of earthly glory. Christ, your king of glory, is in you, giving you a foretaste of the greater glory that is yet to come. Now, this side of heaven, what more could we ask for? Christian, you have Christ in you. And so the the, the glory to come is certainly coming to you. What a great comfort this must have been to that young church in Colossae. 
in this broken and sorrow-filled world, Christ in you means that you are able to rest from chasing after lesser glories. Because of our hope of glory, we have no need of chanting, no days off, no days off. Now for the mystery. Check this out. When you trust in Christ, Christ comes to dwell in you, right? But also, you come to reside in him, that is, his body, which is called the church. Look at the end of verse 24. Paul lives a sacrificial life for the sake of his body, that's Christ's body, that is, the church. It's another mystery, but Christ has a body on earth right now. His body is the total sum of all who genuinely trust in him. And if that's you, you belong to his body, the church. Christian, understand this. Christ's plan for his people was that we would belong to his body, the church. Why? Because Jesus loves and cares for his people, the church. Sadly, many Christians live in denial of this. They've bought in this false understanding of salvation, a very Americanized version of salvation. Salvation is purely individual, individualistic. It's me and Jesus, and since I've got Jesus, I've got all that I need, right? Truth is, you need his body, the church. And not just coming to church once a week. You, know, you, can, attur- you can attend church weekly and still not be connected to the body. So why did God give you the church? Well, one, so that you could come under its authority, because we need that. Look at verse 25. Paul says um, concerning the church that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul calls himself a a minister. The Greek word is diakonos. It it literally means servant. Okay, so... um, Whose idea was it for Paul to become a servant of the church? It was God's idea. God who gave Paul the stewardship or or commission to oversee the body of Christ. Now, why did God give Paul this stewardship? Paul says it was given to me for you. God is looking out for the body of Christ. God knows that in order for the body to thrive, there must be leaders like Paul who love the church and is burdened for her and cares for her. Now in our passage, Paul says that his role role is twofold. Uh, God gave servant leaders to the church, one, to make known the word of God, and two, to make the people of God fully mature. Look at the end of verse 25. One, what we see here is God gave leaders to the church to make the word of God fully known. You and I regularly need to hear from God and not just, not just uh, about God, but from God. Earlier in this letter, in, in, in just a few verses before, in verse 9, chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says this. He says he's praying without ceasing uh, and he's asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, when we sit under good preaching and teaching, where the scriptures are opened up and explained, um, when they are applied to our lives, whether it's here in a, in a sermon or in a small group study or something like that, we, we 
don't just know things about God, but we become filled with the knowledge of God's will. What God is like, what he's up to, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, uh, who he is calling us to be as his followers. All this and more is graciously given to us in the preaching of the word. Paul says that he is one who is called to steward the word of God for the body of Christ. Verse 28, he states, him we proclaim. Paul is not alone in this calling. He says, him we proclaim. He's referring to apostles, uh, other leaders in the church and teachers in, the, in all of these churches that are springing up all around the Mediterranean in those early days. But did you notice the focus of the servant's proclamation? Him, that's Christ, him we proclaim. No doubt the false teachers in Colossae would have mentioned Jesus, uh, you know, but they, he wouldn't be the center of their proclamation. Instead, they would tout some secret wisdom or, or even themselves. You know, we see this all around America today. There's a famous smiling preacher down in Houston with a huge building and a large television audience. He's popular with many. Perhaps you listen to him. I get it. But I ask you to this. Listen closely to his message or ones like it. They might mention Jesus every now and then. But mostly he's talking about you and what you need to do. And if you do this, the secret wisdom that I have, if you do, 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 if you work hard enough, if you take no days off, then things will go well for you. He'll tell a story about some man or woman who works hard. Betty had a rough life. Betty was a go-getter. She didn't get up, give up. She got what she was looking for. She got everything she wanted in life. Now go be like Betty. You might as well be chanting, no days off, no days off. Unfortunately, much preaching in America isn't him we proclaim. Good preaching must always keep Christ in our ongoing absolute need of him in focus. At the heart of it all, we desperately need Christ. And by virtue of our faith in Christ, well, we get Christ. Christ in you. In addition to making the word of God fully known, Paul also shows us that God gave leaders to the church to make the people of God fully mature. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul cannot stop talking about Christ to the body of Christ. Tirely, tirelessly, with all of his energy, he presses on, warning and teaching everyone so that they may be presented mature in Christ. My friends, it's true, isn't it? It's possible to be, it's possible to be in Christ and yet not be mature, right? To grasp your need for Christ, but not fully grasp the new possibilities that he brings. Or the responsibilities that are now yours. Why is it that God has given Paul, as well as all the leaders in this church, the commission of maturing the church? Because we all need it. Every one of us needs to mature. How do I know this? Well, look at your bulletins again. Verse 28. Uh, not in your Bibles, but in your bulletins. Take a pen, underline uh, every time Paul says the word everyone. In verse 28. 
Him we proclaim. You don't have to. You can use your eyes and do it. All right. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Talk about no one left behind, right? Let me ask you, would Paul be satisfied if he went to Colossae and found 199 out of 200 professing Christians to be maturing in, in their faith? What do you think he would do? I think he'd rejoice. That's great work. But I also think he would care for the one who needs to mature. Paul's goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. See, everyone who belongs to Christ's body, understand this, is cherished by Christ. And he desires that all of us would be mature in him. Now, what does immaturity look like? To be immature in Christ means that you, you have a limited understanding of God's will for you and for your life. It means that you find fault in others, but not in yourselves. You tend to blame shift. You feel lethargic or purposeless. Or your purpose is selfish and self-centered. You're tossed back and forth by circumstances. You lack gospel contentment. You give in quickly to temptation. You never attempt great things for God's glory. You don't know how to rest in Christ. You live in fear of others or envy of others. God seems distant. To summarize, when you're immature, there is very little of the restored glory of Christ flowing into your life. Now, to be mature in Christ means what? It means you're more like Christ, kind, patient, gentle, hopeful, generous, loving. These are all good things, right? Who would not desire these things? It means that your life is filled with great purpose and creativity and, and devotion and joyfulness and accomplishment and satisfaction. This is God's plan for his people, how could we say no? My friend, God desires you to be mature in Christ. And not so that you will be well-behaved, good little boys and girls. Christ, the hope of glory, is in you. So that you can experience and live out this glory now. Now, let's be truthful here. Every Christian begins as a young immature Christian. Some of you here, we have a lot of new Christians here at Grace Church. It's okay to be immature for now. But let me ask all of you, do you want to mature in Christ? Do you see your ongoing need to mature? And do you see that Christian maturity cannot be achieved apart from active involvement in the body of Christ? Paul says that faithful servants in the church have the responsibility of presenting everyone mature in Christ. Talk about a responsibility. In verse 28, that is what Paul says good servant leaders do. Um, they present everyone mature in Christ. But 
How are they to go about this? Have you ever, have you ever watched a really good basketball coach lead his team on the sidelines in a game? Good coaches, when they see a player make a bonehead play, usually do what? They pull them out of the game, sit them down on the bench, uh, and, and they admonish them as to what went wrong, and then teach them in the proper way. In verse 28, that's what Paul says good servant leaders do. Look, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, another word for warning everyone is admonishing. A good coach admonishes his players and always capitalizes on a teachable moment. The players who develop most are which? Are they not the ones who come under the authority of their coach and listen and are molded by his admonishments and teachings? I bet all of us can point to some great athlete who had great natural talent and ability. But he just would not or she would not come under the authority of the coach. Left the team or was always moping and who knows what. Whatever it was, they would not come under the coach's authority nor allow the coach to speak into their lives. Christian, if you are ever going to progress from immaturity to maturity, you must, you must allow others to speak godly wisdom into your lives and without getting defensive. It could very easily be another man or a woman who you've invited to hold you accountable, perhaps someone in a small group that you're participating in. It could be a leader on a ministry team that you serve on. It could be myself, could be another elder. But the question that you need to decide ahead of time and not in the moment of crisis is, will I allow others to look into my life and speak truth to me in love and walk with me to grow me in Christ-likeness? If you wait to a crisis or some moral failure in your life, you're not going to welcome it. But if you decide today that you will, then perhaps on that day, when you need to be admonished and encouraged, you will perhaps listen and grow. You know, in the months ahead here at Grace Church, we got some really wonderful things in store. We will be sharing with you about how we are implementing our one-on-one discipleship program here at Grace Church. For months, uh, months, we've been developing it behind the scenes. We have some, uh, we're tweaking it and, and uh, getting it better and better. We have some people who are going through it. We're preparing uh, about a dozen men and women to be trained disciplers, which means that by year's end, at least a dozen of you will be able to be discipled by another mature Christian in a long-term, one-on-one discipleship relationship. That's pretty cool, huh? Do you desire that in your life? Do you want it? Do you see your need for it? Your leaders at Grace Church take very seriously your spiritual maturity. We desire to present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone. Now for the manner. There's something here in the manner that may scare you off, but I hope not. See, at some point, as you're maturing in Christ, guess what? You will become one who, like Paul, has a commission to present others mature in Christ. In other words, 
What is the result of you being discipled? Well, you will become a disciple who now disciples others. (laughs) Scary thought, huh? Jesus' great commission to his church said, Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them into the church. Teach them all that I have taught you. That's his plan. Are you a part of that plan? You know, it's a great privilege. It's also a great responsibility. It's not easy work. In fact, look at how Paul describes the manner of his ministry. Two things. It means fellowship with Christ's sufferings, and it means fellowship with Christ's struggles. I don't know if you noticed this, but we skipped the first verse and the last verse, and we kind of just sandwiched in the Christ in you part. Um, The bread can be kind of hard to swallow. Suffering and toiling struggles is what sandwiches these verses. Paul begins in verse 24 by saying that he rejoices in his suffering for their sake. There is something about the hope of glory that energizes Paul that causes him to actually rejoice at the suffering of leading churches. I hope you comprehend this. The more you mature in Christ, the more alive you become in Christ, the more willing you are to suffer for the body of Christ so that she may be built up. Now, Paul says something confusing in verse 24. We won't spend much time there. He says, In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, Paul is not saying that there's something lacking in Christ's atonement. No, Christ achieved a full atonement for you on the cross. He suffered for our sins so that we need not suffer. But what we see here is, Paul is saying that doesn't mean that we won't continue to suffer for Christ's cause. And T. Wright says, Paul isn't saying that his current suffering is in addition to Christ's own suffering. Rather, it's to be seen as an extension of it. Just as Christ suffered so that the glory of God's redemption could come into this world, so too Paul and other Christian servants suffer so that the message of salvation will spread throughout the world. Paul was committed to this cause with all of his being. He saw that suffering for this cause was actually reason to rejoice. How about you? Paul began this passage with sufferings and he ends with toiling struggles. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil. That's a colorful word. Try to use it this week. You don't use that very much. Paul says that he toils, struggles, so that, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For the mature servant in the body of Christ, there are no half measures. The work of leading the church into greater and greater holiness and Christ's likeness is difficult work. It's prolonged toil. It's not for those who serve with half measures. When I was in seminary a number of years back, I was in a practical theology class, and the professor was talking about the heavy workload uh, of being in ministry. And then one of the young students raised his hand and stood up. He's in the front row. And, and um, he promptly let us know that he and his buddy sitting next to him, they were going to do ministry entirely different. They were going to model for the church a 40-hour work week. See, people in the church need a balance, and the pastoral staff should lead the way. I raised my hand, cleared my throat, and I said, if that's really how you feel... You need to find another vocation. 
I mean, are you really going to tell your elders and your deacons and your leaders this? Do you not know that they're going to be working 40, 50, 60 hours a week? And coming to the church and serving for 5 to 10 hours a week in ministry, toiling and struggling. Okay, I didn't use Paul's words there, but you get the point. I have no idea if these guys ever became ordained ministers or where they're at. But the truth is that much of ministry is toiling and struggling. There's so much brokenness in the body of Christ. Not every member wants to mature. And even when things are going splendidly, there's still just a lot of toil and struggle. But check this out. There is something that only those who toil and struggle for the sake of the body of Christ get to experience. Many of you know what this is. What is it? Christ, powerfully, working in you. Whose energy did Paul say he toiled and struggled with? Whose energy was it? It It's Christ's energy. Look at verse 29. Struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. How is it that Christ can work powerfully in his toiling, struggling servants? Because the mystery is true. Christ in you, a hope of glory, dwells in God's people. As you toil for the sake of the body of Christ, guess what? You experience a foretaste of the glory. You experience the powerful working of the very Son of God who resides in heaven in you. All of his energy and his power. My friends, I'm afraid so many people in the church don't even know what that's like. But thankfully, many here at Grace Church do. You, you struggle and toil in the ministries that you're called to. You, you experience the power of the Holy Spirit as you show up tired for second Saturdays out wondering how am I going to get through this night of dealing with 60 little kids running around oh yeah I remember this is good work important work I'm called to this work and Christ is in me his energy flows through me not in some mystical new age way but in a real true and sure and powerful way some of you here are serving in leadership roles you're familiar with what I'm describing I just want to thank you for your work. I want to encourage you to just, just keep powering on, uh, following after Christ uh, in the glory and the power that he gives you. Um, and take time to give thanks to him for that. You're a living testimony of how, how Jesus loves this church by placing people in this church in leadership roles and equipping them and empowering them so that the body of Christ may be built up and matured. So let me conclude asking a few simple questions. In what or who do you place your hope of glory? Is it something fading on earth like a career or a relationship? Know this, careers and relationships and even homes and possessions, they're good things. But they cannot be the ultimate things in our life. If we search for glory in them, they will always let us down. The glory will be fading. Glory, true, lasting, eternal glory can only be found in a restored relationship with God and in the glory that he gives us now 
and even more so in the glorious age to come. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. The hope of glory is in you. May you live today in light of the glory that is now yours by God's grace. To our fallen cries of no days off, no days off, Jesus our Savior says, rest in me, rest in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, it's true. The reason why we love you, the reason why we want to honor you, the reason why we get excited to open scripture, the reason why we get excited to serve is because you have placed Christ in us. We don't normally think these thoughts or desire these things. We thank you that you've done this for us. More importantly, we thank you um, that it's Jesus that we proclaim and not ourselves. May we be encouraged today um, to, to mature in Christ and to be a part of the body, to honor you and to serve you. May we experience more and more of your glory in us as we become more and more like Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.